Welcome to a special bonus episode of Foster Career Experience, a podcast featuring interviews with people who've had experience with the foster care system about their lives, their career journeys, and their stories of navigating the workplace. After publishing all of the interviews, I realized that I wanted to talk more about the conversations that we had and how they could be continued in the workplace. So today's retrospective episode features Dr. Amy Ware. Dr. Ware works at the University of Pennsylvania as the program director for the Organizational Dynamics Graduate Program. She also previously founded the Human Dimensions of Organizations Graduate Program at the University of Texas at Austin, where I studied. Dr. Ware also does research and academic work related to American Indian cultural history. I think it's the applicability element that connects um, a lot of my experiences and interests with uh, studying uh, Native history and culture. We realize that academic work without applicability doesn't always hold, it doesn't hold much water. And we often default to thinking of the arts and sciences as a space of reflection, analysis, and not always much action. Armchair anthropology is a popular term um, in Native studies and in other fields, which implies more of the thinking than the doing. Thinking is absolutely important, and I, I do not fault that in any way. But for me, I have passion in trying to articulate and then follow through on the ways that something like literature and philosophy and anthropology and sociology can help us better understand different cultural contexts. Dr. Ware was also an advisor for my graduate research about the career experiences of foster care alumni. So I think collecting stories is always important. We, um, as people, we uh, resonate with stories much more than we do a, uh, a a work performance form, for example, right? Or um, any processes we use in the workplace to evaluate one another. We don't always know everyone's stories and we don't know the stories as they would represent them. So um, I believe that a study like this is imperative for the same reasons that collecting the oral histories of people who walked the trail of tears is important. Meaning there's insider and outsider storytelling practices with any groups that struggle in the United States, globally, however you want to look at it. And so really understanding the insider nature of experience such as, um, you know, foster graduates and alumni, um, that we learn to think differently. We who have not experienced that learn to think differently about those experiences. And so through the individual stories, we see themes and you can't group them all together because they're individual stories, but they become something of a constellation, right? Where you can begin to see an image or you see connections among them, even though they exist separately. Um, and this particular topic 
is something that is understudies, understudied. Right. It can cross um, racial and ethnic and gender lines, which just makes it an interesting, in a, you know, an interesting field in addition to uh, the ways the childhood experience can affect us long-term. The story of each person I spoke with was unique and a constellation of four themes emerged across their individual stories. Theme number one, every person that I spoke with talked about their job through the lens of how it helped others. One example comes from our second episode, which features Kimberly, a millennial working in the service industry. Kimberly spoke about how she supports the people that she manages. Of course, it, the, the, the same way any manager would, um, I do tend to chime in when there's an, an upset customer. You know, if, if that customer is being extremely difficult and extremely rude, I'll have my girls walk away and go to another room while I, while I deal with it. Um, I buy them food on a weekly basis. Um, I buy cleaning materials. I will help them finish their rooms. Um, I do have a few associates who I, they don't tell me, but I can tell they're not doing too well. So I like to buy food to make sure they're at least eating. You you can kind of tell when somebody comes in and it's just the look in their eyes. And, you know, I have one worker, he will clock out for his lunch and not eat anything sometimes. So I will be like, hey, so-and-so, here's some money. Can you go grab me something? And while you're at it, grab something for yourself. I mean, I know, I know what it's like to grow up not being able to do things for myself not being able to eat or you know uh good hygiene or anything like that so I do like to try to make sure that my my guys and my girls are taken care of any any if I mean I've offered to help pay somebody's uh her son's school um stuff or school things like that because I know how it is to not have what I need to have to live now Back to Dr. Ware. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it really reflects, I think, um, just so many different aspects of what uh, people's experience, or, or uh, let me say, the ways that people's experience can contribute to a more full and robust organizational culture, right? Because there's several things that strike me about that story. One is um, that her keen observations of her colleagues' experience. You ask her in that episode, you followed up and said, um, do you mean food? Do you mean, you know, what? in what way were they not doing well? And um, you can almost hear a bit of resistance in her voice being like, well, just not doing well. It might be food, it might be this, you know, and it's often food is what we ended up, she ended up talking about, but just this overarching, you can look at someone and sort of get a feel for where they're at. That is a skill that not a lot of people have, right? And further, the ability to have enough compassion where you do something like give someone money 
ask them to get you lunch and get themselves something. It provides a lot of agency to the other person. And if we look at that as a parallel to the workplace, right, when we talk about micromanagement or, you know, um, how we deal with leadership and the way we work with others, allowing someone the agency to make their own decisions about how they, you know, what they want to eat or how they want to accomplish a task is very empowering, right, to provide someone with that trust. And so I think creating parallels between those experiences that Kimberly in that way describe in that case describes and how we can both learn from those stories and value those who have those skills in our, in our workplace. Yeah. And I just, I loved that she was like, well, you know, just, I, you know, not that, there can be multiple ways in which they aren't doing well, but she also wasn't afraid to reach out and help. And it takes courage to help someone. I, I live in a big city right now. We walk by people who need help frequently. And it takes people who have both courage, compassion, and often experience to stop and help someone. Theme two is related to self-reliance and authority. While everyone spoke about wanting to help others, some people shared that they struggled with asking for help from their peers or in believing that help would be adequate. However, many also demonstrated true skill in articulating their needs and the needs of their colleagues to authority figures, speaking truth to power in a sense, even if it affected their relationships with leaders. Dustin, a millennial working in healthcare, had the following to say. The big thing for me is like wanting a boss that like is respectful and like knows where you're coming from and like isn't using authority just because they have authority. Um, I think too, like growing up in foster care, it's like a lot of kids struggle with authority because they're being told to do things and like they have so little decision making ability in their own life. Um, and so for me, I feel like in the workplace, sometimes I struggle because I'm like, I don't like people making decisions that impact me. And I have like zero say in it, especially when it feels like it's not coming from a good place, you know? Um, and so I'm like really hoping my next career move, um, just like having a good respectful boss that like appreciates opinions and like different ideas and isn't just like, I'm the boss, what I say goes. When I caught up with Brenda another healthcare worker, after her interview, she added the following. And along with what Miles said, I also think it's important, like, I know for a lot of jobs I had, like, I was always fighting for what was right, because I always had to fight for myself, right? And then when I went into my employment, it was always, whatever the employment was, it's like, I always try to fight for the right thing, because I felt like I always had to fight when I was in the system making those decisions. You know, I'm going to fight for myself. And then I try to fight for everybody. And then that would just get me in trouble. Because <laughs> I knew I was right, but I was used to not just fighting for me, but fighting for the other girls I live with or the other foster care kids, you know? And so it's like wanting to fight every battle, but you realize like, 
because you could, right? You had a lot of flexibility in that in the foster care system because it was going to get mad at you. Nobody, right? Then you go to people who can tell you and can fire you. And you still think you can kind of behave that way. Well, I didn't know any better. And I mean, I've lost jobs before because of that. Like no filter. That was the thing. No filter. I didn't know how to have a filter. I think it's that I didn't know how to say these things. Because I'd always have bosses tell me, you're not wrong. Your points aren't wrong. Just how you're coming across with it is not setting well with us. <laughs> to lack of a better word. And and now being older and being, uh, you know, had several different jobs and careers, I, I realized like they were right. Because I, I, I wasn't wrong. I don't think I thought every battle and sometimes I mean sometimes I could have been wrong right but most of the battles I did fight I and they would tell me straight up you're you're not wrong you're absolutely right we should be doing it this way blah 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 and oftentimes I was so like it's got to change it's got to change you know and it's like I wouldn't let it go and that was another thing is like I never learned from anybody to know when to just go okay uncle you know <laughs> Because again, you know, we didn't we didn't have those uh, examples of people who had careers and all, you know, and and I'm talking about even like regular jobs when I worked in a bar and when I did other you know things and of course that all filtered over to when I became a professional. I didn't really know how to have those professional conversations with people. Going back to Doctor Ware, I think you know the idea of a. Um... Our traditional idea of a hierarchical organization, right, isn't always um, attuned to the power of dissent and feedback that that some people provide either based on their experience or, you know, based on their opinions of what's going on in a in an organizational setting. So I think the self-reliance issue is one that makes perfect sense listening to these stories. And I think it's interesting how it comes into play, uh, particularly with authority. Because with colleagues, it seems to become um, less of an issue, right? It's that that self-reliance is also very much tied to community and helping others. So it's more that there's this upward uh, potential for antagonism I believe it's the responsibility of the leader, the boss, the manager um, to listen to their employees. They may not always agree with what someone says if they buck authority or they are coming um, at you with a level of defensiveness tied to some of the issues that these stories reflect. But I don't believe it is necessarily um, wrong to express frustration because I think there's often a grain of truth, if not more than a grain, um, to what people are saying. And so I think listening is the best way in to working with someone to establish a healthier work relationship with them, to um, go to a boss or a manager or have a lot of anger toward them, you know, often these folks were able to articulate that anger. 
So if you can articulate it, then you can begin a discussion. And so if I, if as managers and leaders, um, we can begin to listen to those we work with, even if it's uh, uncomfortable, uh, the more we can learn to move forward, right? Because what a lot of these stories reflect to me is a lack of trust in leadership. And trust is established exactly as you described it, that you want to involve people in those in decisions. So the second you don't involve someone in decisions, just like these children experienced growing up in a foster care system, is the moment um, you build a wall. And so to break down that wall is to be able to talk through it. People who are placed in positions of authority <laughs> are paid more. They are there's more expected of them, and they should be working to help others get into that same position. They should also be working to improve their own levels of compassion and skill and listening ability. And so I agree. I think it takes a ton of courage to dissent in any capacity. At work, you're putting your livelihood on the line sometimes by doing this. And uh, unfortunately, we don't always see that as an act of empowerment. We see it as an, we, we see it more negatively. And I don't think that's always the case. I think it is the frame, the cultural frame where we're looking at it. Theme number three is related to security. Some people said that they tend to choose safer options. They often felt that they didn't have the safety net of financial savings, support from their family, or something to fall back on. Simply put, the cost of failing was greater for them than it was for others. In our episode with Victor about bringing your whole self to work, Victor says one way that organizations can support foster care alumni is by creating a greater sense of security within their organization. When you look at organizations and you've got people in the organization that are foster, that have been in foster care or adopted, one of the greatest values and things drivers for them is going to be their sense of security and, and fairness. And so it's incumbent upon the, the organization in many ways to create a sense of security within that environment for that person to thrive. Mm -hmm. Looking back at my career, a lot of the choices I made were less, were more risk averse because I was, I was less, I felt less secure in my social standing and less secure economically because of the background that I've had. I could feel like at any time, sometimes the, the floor might fall out on me. If the organization can create that security, they can really allow people that are adopted, have been in foster care, to to be to take more challenges and to deliver better better experience. I definitely stayed longer at that company because of one of wanting a sense of stability and security and to try to set myself both up with a level of financial security so that if, sh if something wrong should ever happen, I wouldn't fall that far. But also another factor is 
because I've I've been without a, a parent figure, I'm looking for those loyal relationships, those those opportunities that stick around. And I want that security. I want those opportunities of of having that security. In many ways, um I th I think it's it's cliche now to say that the current generation wants to switch jobs every two to three years or will have seven different careers. But I don't know that that's necessarily what they want. I think what most people want is opportunities for growth and long-term security. And if that can be achieved at the same company over 30 years, like the past generations had it, they would be very willing to accept and adopt it. Now back to Dr. Ware. Yeah, I think that... Um, that's extraordinarily well said. I mean, for me, the issue of security and insecurity is one that is likely tied to privilege very much across the board. Thinking about people who move into insecure jobs, they often have a level of sec security at that base. That might be, you know, it might be additional income. It might be, you know, family uh, stability, it could, you know, any number of things. And I do believe that creating security at work, not just with this, with this particular demographic, but with everyone, right? It gives people a chance to take a deep breath, right? And we don't, we don't have that as much anymore in our corporate and organizational cultures as we used to, where you feel like, oh, I could be a part of this for my life because you are making me, you're, provi you're providing me with a sense of security. Um, and I think we learn how that plays out more deeply through the stories of foster, uh, foster care graduates who, um, you know, articulated as well as Victor does. But I, I think one, one strength of understanding the stories of people who have had very, who have faced very long-term insecurity is that it helps us all articulate more effectively what might create security because we understand what creates insecurity. And so um, with these stories, you know, to me, it was funny because when you said, um, you know, this is a particular group of people who are longing for security, I thought, well, how many of us want insecurity? But I would not have thought about it that way were it not for Victor's story, right? That I, I feel like the articulation of that insecurity creates self-reflection for me. And yeah, I, I just, I hope that through these stories, people can really think through not just the experiences of the people telling the stories, but the ways those stories can broaden our understanding of ourselves and our organizations and our experiences in, well, in the United States and in our careers. Final theme in these interviews was about the importance of relationships at work. 
In our episode with Rachel about mission-driven leadership, she spoke about how her coworkers have become like a family to her. My kids see, you know, my coworkers as like their family. Um, you know, he calls, he calls, you know, my coworker Stacy, um, Aunt Stacy. You know, if my husband's not able to do something, there's 20 other people here like I'll go pick up your kids for you don't even worry about it anywhere I have a family here that you know I'm really I may not have like a really close relationship with my biological family but I have 28 people here that I love and love me and to me that's I want to change that it's beautiful I mean isn't that what many of us hope we will find in a workplace and it shows the importance of allowing uh, people to bring them their whole selves to work. Um, and that means in the way they want to, right? It, people, when they bring themselves to work, want to draw a very stark line between work and home. And others may bring in some of the challenges that they face. And if work, and by which I mean coworkers and supervisors, et cetera, are able to help. I mean, it's going to have bottom line results. It's going to have practical results, a much, much greater retention, the archiving of knowledge in an organization so that there can be a succession planning that isn't extraordinarily rocky. Um, and so I think all of us work for different reasons, but in these stories, for me, I was reminded that we spend a lot of time at our work and that we are in many ways a family um, and that we can choose to um, support those we work with if we, if we work on our levels of compassion and everyone likes to work in different environments, but I always hope to work with some, with people who will be as compassionate as some of these voices we heard on the podcast. These stories to me remind me of um, many other stories I've heard, but in a different context. And I think it's important to remember to find strength in what may be a story that some of us perceive as weakness or struggle. And that some of the strengths brought up in these stories are ones you just don't find in every person. And they are the result of not just experience, but survival and thriving. I think we want to um, remember that in organizational context, when we're hiring people, when we're listening to people, and we may not know all of their stories, but everyone is bringing with them experiences that will affect the organization. So being open to hearing those stories can only make them better places. Early in our interview, I asked Dr. Ware if people who don't have experience in the foster care system 
could learn the things that Kimberly naturally demonstrated. Courage, compassion, and experience. I believe that we may be able to get close to learning those skills in that order. If we practice compassion, and the reason I talk about compassion in these are academic concepts. Uh, when we when we try to piece them apart, academic concepts that we um, that we care about kind of inside the academy as a way of distinguishing them, so we can talk about them and act on them. So, for example, um, I think about compassion as it relates to empathy and as it relates to sympathy, and I find that there's potential problems in both empathy and sympathy. Um, sympathy may be, I feel sorry for you. That's not always useful to someone else. Um, and empathy is very powerful in that we can imagine others' experiences. There's danger in that, though. Um, in that, or, or we're limited. That um, truly, we can't imagine others' experiences, and so we can't imagine them as fully as we learn from the stories. And so, this compassion—the way that I distinguish—is it distinguish it? Is it's you know, learning to work with the experiences of other people. Okay, so that brings together two of those three points. And the more we practice compassion, the more we can acquire it. I think that we can start to develop compassion by really thinking through some people's, ex the, the experiences of those who have um, faced a lot of trials and how they now empower others by calling on these previous experiences they lived through and they endured. I do think that it takes, uh, you know, all of these things take practice outside of experience, which you can't um, always get, but um, compassion and courage, I think can be practiced. So here's to practicing more compassion and courage in the new year and continuing to learn from the experiences of others. Thanks for listening to this episode. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Sam Heimbach. It was produced by Zachary Webb. Podcast art and website design are by Hanna Finvez of HMF Design. Music is from Soundstripe. This podcast was funded in part by the Baton Savoie Scholarship offered through the Human Dimensions of Organizations Master's Program at the University of Texas at Austin. You can learn more about this episode and others at fostercareerexperience.com. Thank you.